I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. In his new book of poetry, Above Ground, Clint Smith tells his young son, you can write a poem about anything, including a lamp or a door, his son asks. Of course, definitely, Smith replies. So everything is a poem, his son asks again. Everything, Smith says. Clint Smith began writing this collection when his wife was pregnant with their first child, that curious son, and continues through the birth of their second child, a daughter. It's filled with poems about the love, joy, and wonder of fatherhood alongside his fears and despair about the world his children will inherit, especially as a black father. There are odes to those parental lifesavers, the baby swing and the double stroller, poems about making French toast, about New Orleans, where Smith grew up, about the pull of past generations, and sadly, a school shooting. Clint Smith's 2021 nonfiction book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was a bestseller. It is still timely, what with school districts banning, even criminalizing, in some cases, the teaching of our racial history. Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic and joins us on The Connection. A great pleasure. Nice to have you with us on the show, especially to talk about poetry. It's so good to be here with you. Let's start with your, uh, a poem near the very beginning of your book, and it's called Waiting on a Heartbeat. Waiting on a Heartbeat. The doctor says you are there even though we cannot hear you, and you know what they say about the tree falling in the forest, and I know I have never heard a tree I could not see, but I've seen trees I could not hear. Little one. They tell me you are half the size of a fingernail. And when I hear that, I look down at my cuticles and imagine you sitting there telling me, Dad, it's going to be okay. There is nothing to worry about. There is joy in being a father to a mystery. There is grace in observing the tulip and knowing it will not bud before your eyes. Little one, you are my daily reminder that you do not go to a garden to watch the flowers grow. You go to give thanks for what has already bloomed. I really love that poem. What was the the inspiration for that poem? Yeah, so, you know, my wife and I um, had fertility issues that we were sort of navigating, um, as is the case with uh, with so many others. And, and so we were told by uh, doctors that we had less than a 1% chance mm-hmm. of getting pregnant. Uh, and so there was a period of time in which uh, becoming um a biological mother and father felt uh, felt so uh, impossible and felt so distant. And when we did conceive, it felt miraculous, uh, but it also felt so so fragile, and it felt so like that that could uh, something could happen at any moment. And so there were these moments when when we first began to hear the heartbeat um, that we got one of those Dopplers, uh, sort of take home Doppler. Um, and and every night we you know, we'd listen to to sort of remind ourselves that that our uh, our unborn child was was still there, um, and and it, so the the pr- process and the pregnancy was uh, itself a complicated one. It was itself uh, one filled with uh, distress and discomfort, um, especially for my wife. And and so I wanted to write poems uh, to sort of remember these moments of of incredible excitement. 
but also uh, a, a feeling of incredible uncertainty. I mean, being a parent, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a parent myself. It, it's about everything. There's every feeling imaginable out there mm. that, that one feels as a parent, whether it's love or joy or worry or terror or anger, exhaustion. I mean, the list goes on forever as a poet. Um, it, it must be in, incredible to be able to mine all of this stuff. Yeah, I feel I feel very lucky, and and for me, poetry is the act of paying attention, paying attention to a moment, a feeling, an idea. It's almost as if you, when you walk, let's say there's a tree outside of your house, right. and you walk by that tree every day, and if somebody asks you to describe that tree, you could sort of describe the sort of general contours of the tree, the color of the tree, the color of its bark. But what if one day you, you stop at that tree and you walk up to it and you look at, and instead of just you know, walking by it when you walk your dog or walk your kids to school and you like really look at it and you hone in on a particular leaf and you see that that leaf is actually three different shades of green hmm. and you see the way that it's turning yellow at the edge as to reflect the changing season and you see the way there's a hole near the stem where a caterpillar took a bite. It, it, you're, you're looking at that same tree, but you're looking at it with a specificity with a granularity, um, with an attention that you might not always have seen it with. And I think that poetry, for me, is that, that process. It is the act of paying attention, of reflecting, of sitting with an image, a moment, a feeling, um, and excavating it uh, as fully as I can. And, and being a father obviously taps into your own childhood, your, your own father. And I'd love to have you read an, another poem from your book. It's called Across Generations. I'd be happy to. Across generations. So much of what I've learned about being a father, I learned from my father. And so much of what my father learned of raising children was pulled from the spaces between his father's name. My grandfather's father was a man whose name I can't remember, but I wonder if his rage is the ammunition trying to make a weapon of my voice. When I speak to my son, I carry the echo of generations, of men attempting to unlearn the anger on their father's tongues, the heat in their hands. What was your dad, or what is your dad like? What kind of a dad was he? He's a great guy, just like a good, good person. Um, he is calm. He is steady. He was just like such a steady foundational presence um, for for us growing up. And And it's interesting when you become a parent, you... You know, sometimes I'll be saying things to my kids and I will I will hear my dad's voice sort of coming out of my own my own mouth. Um, but I feel so grateful to have had a, a model of a father who uh, provided, you know, me with a childhood that I, in so many ways I'm trying to replicate for my own kids. Um, the, the sort of steadiness, the sort of and, and also those moments of silliness. Um, that were really special. Let me read just a couple of lines from your poem called Tradition, and you, and you write so much of what I tried to do as a father is put back together the puzzle pieces of what made my fa- what my father did for me. What is the way he held me when I first said I was afraid of the dark? How long did he let the silence between us sit when I had done something that broke his trust? What was the shape of his eyes when he told me he'd never be disappointed if I tried my best? I mean, those are such powerful images and and such strong feelings. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think so much of what all of us are trying to do is take parts of our childhood that were really valuable and really meaningful, that were full of nostalgia, 
um, and replicate those moments for our kids. But it's also the process of sort of disaggregating the parts of your childhood experience, the parts of your relationship with your parents that you maybe wish were a little bit better or maybe you wished you would have changed. And so it's taking the things that you've seen from your parents, from your grandparents, and sort of calibrating that with the things that your partner is taking from their parents and their grandparents and their family and their village. And it's a sort of ongoing conversation about the the best ways with which to uh, engage with and raise these these little humans that you've been tasked with bringing into the world. All those inheritances, right? All those inheritances. Have you rediscovered or perhaps discovered for the first time parts of yourself that you didn't know existed because you're now a father? You know, I think fatherhood has made me like much sillier. Like I think I <laughs> That's was lovely. Uh, yeah, Good for you. I think, I think it has made me. <laughs> Uh, just, you know, kids, it made, it has made me feel like I'm a stand-up comic because my kids will, like, are very generously, like, laugh at many things that I say. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, I'm so funny. Like, maybe I should switch this poetry thing up for, for a stand-up <laughs> comedy routine. Um, but, Wait till uh, they become teenagers. They won't yeah, find you yeah. so funny, but that's exactly. okay. You've got exactly. time. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to hold on to these moments. Um, but but I think that it is, you know, you. I, what I want for my kids are the memories of the everyday to be filled with, with love and filled with parents who felt present. Um, and I'm, I'm not perfect at it. I'm far from perfect at it. There are times when I, I'm distracted. There are times when I, um, you know, like so many of us, our attention is pulled in so many different directions. Yeah. But, but I, I know that, um, you know, for, it's it, it, what makes parenthood meaningful i think what makes childhood meaningful is not necessarily those huge moments where the graduations the weddings the you know these these the huge birthdays like it's it's when you get on the ground and pretend to be a brachiosaurus with your kid it's when you have a dance party in the kitchen it's when you're making french toast on a sunday morning it's when you're watching the your 50 millionth episode of peppa pig um, <laughs> oh you know peppa pig too oh okay. peppa pig is a is a fixture <laughs> In our home, she, my <laughs> daughter especially, she is in love with that little British pig. That is so great. How about? I mean, this is sort of a, the same question, but but asked slightly differently. But how being a parent has has it changed your view of the world now that you have to, you know, protect these these youngins that are living with you? Yeah, I think that part of what I've loved about becoming a parent is that it has, and you alluded to this before, but it has given me a new lens through which to to see the world, which is to say that I'm experiencing so many parts of the world almost as if for the first time because I'm watching my children experience it for the first time. In the beginning of the book, um, I have an epigraph, um, one for my son and one for my daughter, um, where my my daughter says, when I grow up, I want to be the son. And my son says... Uh, some basically, Dad, have you ever really looked at a ladybug? Um, and that moment comes from this time where uh, maybe a year or, or and a half ago um, when we were all in lockdown and so we were in our houses constantly all the time and there was a sort of random ladybug infestation in my office, uh, my home office and the the seasons I think had changed quickly and maybe the ladybugs got confused and mm. but they were sneaking in through like some some cracks in, in, the, in the window in the house and there were these like dozens of ladybugs in my office. And so I was like running around my, my home office with a magazine, like chasing the ladybugs. And my then three-year-old son comes in and he's like, 
he kind of looks around. He's like, Dad, have you ever really looked at a ladybug? It's amazing. And I'm, you know, and so I'm sort of caught mid, mid magazine in my hand, like trying to chase the ladybugs out of the room. Uh, and I, I slowly bring the magazine down and I'm like, I guess I've never, like, have I ever looked yeah. at a ladybug? And then what is a moment of sort of uh, f- frenzy and freneticism on my end and anxiety becomes this thing where I'm suddenly standing with my three-year-old, just kind of like getting as close to a ladybug as we can and looking at the the, the polka dots on the back of the ladybug and, and the wings that expand and contract. And it, it just, there's so many moments like that. Um, that I think, hmm. especially with regard to the natural world, that allow me to to see it in, in ways I might previously have not. We're almost having a break here, but uh, the way you talk about children helping us pay attention in poetry, kind of the same, right? They help yeah. us pay attention to the world? Absolutely. Our guest today on The Connection is uh, poet and writer Clint Smith. He's got a brand new collection of poetry. We've been hearing some of those poems. It's titled Above Ground, and he's a staff writer at The Atlantic. And after this very short break, I'm going to have him read another poem, an ode to the baby stroller, or the, the double-wide stroller. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss Cohen talking with Clint Smith about his new collection of poetry, and it's titled Above Ground. I'd love to have you read another poem, uh, Ode to the Double Stroller, not the Double Wide Stroller, but kind of operates the same way. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Ode to the Double Stroller. You are the monarch of suburban pavement, a double helix unbound and unbothered, a map unfurling itself across the table and pushing everything else onto the floor. Oncoming joggers have no choice but to step off the sidewalk to make room for your grandeur to genuflect at the sight of something so worthy of a new parent's praise. You contain multitudes. And when I say multitudes, I mean a literal cornucopia of small items packed into compartments and cup holders. I mean apple slices and sippy cups and extra diapers just in case. I mean fruit pouches and coloring books and an extra change of clothes. You repository of Ritz crackers. You collapsible companion. You venerated vehicle. You are the only way I am ever to make it out of the house. You are the only way the infant sleeps and the only way the toddler will sit down for more than three seconds. Some say you're too unwieldy, but your nimble rubber wheels swivel 360 degrees on demand. Together we dance across the concrete while strangers look on in awe. Loose Cheerios falling at our sides and marking the path we've traveled. (laughs) Such a delightful poem. Um, and, and the idea that these mundane things in our lives can be the subject of, of an ode, right? Yeah, I, th- I think that part of what I'm trying to do in this book also is, is, as we said, like, it's those small things. It's those small moments. It's those small items. I mean, I, I, we called our, we don't use it so much now. Our kids are, are too big. But um, 
our double stroller we just yeah. called old reliable you know, because <laughs> we, right? in the, at the beginning of lockdown yeah. uh, i guess three years ago now we had a, a just turned one year old and an almost three-year-old and and it was as it was for many parents of young children it was it was hard it was very hard um and we would uh especially at the beginning put the kids in the stroller uh and we just my wife would you know take the morning and i'd take the afternoon and we'd alternate and we would just go on these long walks and I'd put the kids in the stroller, I'd pack the Cheerios, I'd put on the Lion King soundtrack on repeat and we would just, <laughs> we would walk for hours um, and stop at a random field and, and pick flowers and pretend to be wizards and run around until, uh, until they fall asleep. And, and we did that day after day after day. And so our, our double stroller got more, uh, more, more wear and tear than it may have been, uh, may have anticipated yeah. but but it really held us down for those those early days of such an uncertain time indeed and and a lot of mileage on that stroller and you know almost make the pandemics pandemic sound like fun you know i think that the, you try to find the silver linings of an otherwise uh terrifying time because yeah. um, it certainly as we know is we all it was not fun um it was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly overwhelming. It was incredibly scary, you know, and it was scary to have kids at the beginning because we didn't know how this was impacting children. Um, but, you you know, one thing that's true, and I think a, a lot of parents I've had conversations with over the past few years recognize is that we will probably never spend as much sustained, uninterrupted time together as a family for the rest of our lives. Right. I mean, the, the months and months and months where it was just you and your family, um, it will never be again in terms of an uninterrupted time um, that will probably never be the case again. And so I think, you know, it was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly uh, harrowing. It was incredibly um, unsettling. But there were also things I think that there were things that I was able to pay attention to because I was forced to sit still yeah. that I might otherwise have overlooked if not for the pandemic. Did it change the way you write poetry? It changed my life. I mean, I, I think just logistically and practically, I'm, I'm someone who travels a lot for work, whether it be my reporting, whether it be um, my, you know, doing a reading uh, uh, at, a, at a university. And, and so I was on the road a lot. And when everything shut down, uh, we, you know, my life became very routinized. Like every day, sort of looked the same, and I, I didn't travel anywhere for for two years, um, basically. And and so I think that the routine um, of being home every day, being home every night, did change my writing um, and created a, a certain sort of consistency uh, that hadn't always been the case. I'm very used to um, writing, you know, in airport terminals and. Uh, in the line at the DMV and in the line for pickup, um, for picking up the kids. And, and, and I, there was a period of time where uh, I was able to have more sustained attention, uh, I think, to my writing and more sustained attention to, to my family. And is there a certain place that you gravitated to at home to write your poems? You know, I, my, my wife and I, we um, tried to sort of split time as, as, as everybody was... Um, you know, navigating, you know, people with children and two working parents, you were trying to work, you know, Zoom while the kid was also, you know, with a coloring book while the, I mean, it was such a difficult time, but we tried to split our, 
our days um, so that one person had the afternoon, one person had the morning, and then we would uh, switch back and forth on that. But I don't know that there was a specific place um, as much as I, I sort of moved wherever my kids weren't. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, as, spot, as, yeah. Yeah, as they sort of <laughs> moved around the house, I, was, I just tried to keep one step ahead of them. Yeah. Let me just quickly reintroduce you. And I'd love to have you read another poem, this one called Your National Anthem. But, but first, uh, Clint Smith is our guest today on The Connection. And uh, he wrote a book a couple of years ago. In fact, it won the National Book Critics Circle Award. We'll talk a bit about it uh, a little bit later in the show. It's called How the Word is past, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. He's also a poet, and his most recent collection, just published, is called Above Ground. And this is a poem called Your National Anthem. Your National Anthem. Today, a black man who was once a black boy like you got down on one of his knees and laid his helmet on the grass as this country sang its song to a promise it never kept. The woman in the grocery store line in front of us is on the phone and she is telling someone on the other line that this black man who was once a black boy like you should be grateful we live in a country where people aren't killed for things like this. You know, she says, in some places they would hang you for such a blatant act of disrespect. Maybe he should go live there instead of here so he can appreciate what he has. Then she turns around and sees you in the grocery store cart surrounded by lettuce and yogurt and frozen chicken thighs, and you smile at her with your toothless gum smile, and she says that you are the cutest baby she has ever seen, and tells me how I must feel so lucky to have such a beautiful baby boy. And I thank her for her kind words, even though I know I should not thank her, because I know that you will not always be a black boy, but one day you may be a black man, and you may decide your country hasn't kept its promise to you either. And this woman or another like her, will forget you were ever this boy, and they will make you into something else and tell you to be grateful for what you've been given. There's so much I want to talk about about this poem. Obviously, a reference to Colin Kaepernick. Did this really happen? Were you in the supermarket with your son? It did happen, yeah. it's. uh, I think that... It speaks to a sort of larger phenomenon that, that's talked a lot about in, um, in sort of sociology, uh, which is the adultification of black children mm-hmm. and how you know, black children are not allowed to be children for as long as uh, their white counterparts are. Um, they, from a young, you know, we've, and over the past decade or so, we've seen um, examples of this. We've seen the way that police officers talked about 12-year-old Tamir Rice when he was killed and how they talked about him as if he was this this mammoth. They talked about him as if he was this huge sort of, um, uh, uh, sort of Hulk-like creature. Um, the way they talked about Michael Brown. Um, the way that you know, the way that black children are, that their way of being, their time period of being understood as children, um, whether from police, whether in the classroom, whether uh, you know, in the simply moving through the world, walking through. A CVS is so um, so much more uh, so much shorter than that of others, and I, I I think you know I was thinking about my son and how some of the same people who who look at him and think that he's adorable when he is you know a few months old will in a few years perhaps see him in a very different light. How do you prepare your child for that reality? 
that this same woman, you know, in the supermarket 15 years later will, could look at him very differently. I try to be honest with my kids. Um, and, and, you know, in our family, we have conversations about slavery. We have conversations about Jim Crow segregation. We have conversations about their, their grandmother. Uh, my wife's mother is, is Nigerian. Um, and we have conversations about colonialism. We have, and so we have conversations about all these things. You do it in a way that's developmentally appropriate. You do it in a way that's not going to uh, harm or traumatize your children. But it's important, I think, that these conversations happen from a young age and aren't just sort of randomly introduced to children when they're 12, 13, 14 years old. But what we also try to do, you know, that informs the way that we, the sort of books that we read to our kids. And so our book, our kids have books in their library from, you know, the kids' books about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King and Ida B. Wells. But we also have the books about the little black boy who wants to grow up and be a scientist and the little black girl who wants to grow up and be a painter and the little black child who wants to grow up and be a bottle of ketchup. And hmm. it feels important for my children to understand the history from which they come, the history that informs what their lives and the lives around them look like today, the way our society operates today, and also to understand that their lives are only limited by the possi- by their imaginations, right? That the, the possibilities of what their lives can be uh, are not subject to uh, the anchors of the past. We have to understand the past, but also recognize that we are not singularly defined by that past, by a history of violence and oppression that is far much more expansive than that. It must be, though, tricky to, in a sense, prepare them without scaring them. I think that that's the sort of delicate balancing act that black parents have had to navigate for yeah. since we've come here. Yeah. You know, And I don't know that there is a... Uh, a specific answer to it. I think it looks different for each child. I think it looks different for each parent in each place, uh, the circumstances of people's lives. And, and you know, it's not to say that I've, I've perfected it or that we've perfected it in our family. I think so much of, so much of parenthood, as, as all of us know, is, is kind of winging it and just and you're figuring it out as you go and you're, and you're doing your best at every moment that you are sort of um, encountering something that you didn't even necessarily know you had to prepare for. So, so we try our best to be honest with our kids about what we know and also what we don't know, um, because I never want to to speak with an authority uh, that I don't have. Um, I'd rather be honest with my kids about the things that I'm I'm uncertain about, so they know that uncertainty that you don't always have to have the answer and that you won't always have the answer. You grew up in New Orleans. How did your parents prepare you? You know, I I feel very lucky. I grew up in a very um, at once a community that was filled with so many um, so many black people, and you know New Orleans has uh, for so long, especially before Katrina was a majority black city. Um, but I also grew up and went to schools that were incredibly racially diverse. Um, black friends, white friends, Asian friends, you know it was like I was joking, it's like like the Disney Channel. You know we would ride our bikes with theme music playing in the background, our hair blowing in the wind, their hair, not my hair, I have no hair. Um, and and, you know, my, my dad would always say, he's like, I love that you have such a diverse group of friends. That's why we sent you to the school. That's why we moved to this neighborhood. But you have to understand that the implications for the decisions that you make might be very different for you than they are for your other friends. And when you're a kid, you don't really understand that. When you're a kid, you're like, you're the mean dad. You're a strict dad. You know, why can't you more like Tommy's dad? And then he's like, well, Tommy doesn't live in this house. And then the conversation is over. Right. Um, but it, but it, there was an ongoing conversation about how 
the realities of the world we live in necessarily create a different set of dynamics uh, that me and my sister and my brother would have to navigate that are are different than some of our friends might have to navigate. Um, and, And they tried to be honest both about the reality of that phenomenon, but also that such a thing shouldn't have to be a reality. So we were presented with the re- these realities as if they were, uh, not as if they were static or inevitable or unchangeable, but as realities that existed um, that could be changed and that we should spend part of our lives um, working to change in whatever capacity we could. You have talked about being a kid playing with your friends, probably the friends that you just described for us, having this water gun fight in a parking lot. It was at night, you know, running around between, I guess, parked cars or whatever, and your dad pulls you out. Um, and I don't know if he reprimands you exactly, but he, he pulls you up short and tells you, don't do that. What was he saying? You know, it's... it's uh those are the, the, the moments that are so tricky yeah. for a parent. You know, I remember we were playing uh, with water guns in, in a parking lot and, and the sun was setting and it was nighttime. Um, and my dad came out and he was like, you can't, you can't do this. Like you can't, it can't be nighttime. And you have a, a plastic water gun that looks as if it could be a real gun yeah. um, and pretend to be shooting at people because their black children have been killed for far less um, than this, uh, and and you don't ever want to give somebody any pretense um, to to have that would allow them to enact violence against your body, and and it's it's tough because I'm sure that my dad was like he's just a kid who's playing water guns with his friends, right? And I'm sure that. There's a huge part of him that wanted me to just be able to do that. And that's what we want for any of our kids is we want them to be kids. We want them to have fun. We want them to, you know, enjoy themselves and make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. But I think the reality of black parenthood so often is you fear that some your children aren't given the space to make the same mistakes that some other children are. Um, And it's how do you find that balance between allowing your children to uh, stumble into the world as any of us do? without such stumbling or such mistakes or such, you know, just moments playing with water guns in a parking lot uh, being something that uh, could prove fatal. Um, and and it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult thing to balance. And, and I know that um, it's a balancing act that, that black parents think about over the course of their entire, over their entire lives. Yeah. Does, does the world feel more dangerous today for black children? Then, 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 I don't know, a, a generation ago, let's say, 50s, 60s. Yeah, I, I am <clears throat> clearly much has changed since the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and so I'm not someone who believes or would suggest that, that nothing has changed, um, that there are the same sort of dangers for black children as there were then. I, th- I think that there are different sorts of dangers. Um, I think that guns are far more ubiquitous than they were at that period of time. Uh, I think access to such guns is far, um, is many ways easier uh, than, than it was. Um, and so there are, are different sorts of um, dangers that exist that, that didn't exist in the same way a generation ago. But, 
but also the you know the manifestation of racial violence is not is not gone it still exists most most certainly but it also manifests itself in a in a pretty different way now than it did um in the mid 20th century. Yeah, and we're almost up in a great break here. And as I asked that question, I thought of Emmett Till, obviously the, the horror of what happened to him in the 1950s. Yeah, and, and you know what, I think all the time about how my grandfather, you know, grew up in 1930 Mississippi, and that in a different scenario, you know, he could have been yeah. Emmett Till, that he encountered white people who, that he lived, he was raised in a town of a thousand people where someone was lynched and it could have been him. Wow. Clint Smith is our guest today on Radio Times. He writes books, he writes poetry, and he's got a new book of poetry just out called Above Ground. We're going to take another short break, get back to our conversation, and I'm going to have him read a poem he wrote about a school shooting. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. And our guest, again, is Clint Smith. He's got a brand new collection of poems, and it's called Above Ground. Clint, I wanted to have you read this in that, of course, earlier this week, there was this yet another shooting at a school, this one in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, Three, I believe, nine-year-olds, maybe one eight-year-old and two nine-year-olds were killed, a custodian, the principal, and a substitute teacher. I googled this morning how many school shootings this year in 2023, and there have been 17 of them, which is just absolutely horrifying to think about. Mm. You wrote, um, we see another school shooting on the news. Um, Could you read that? We see another school shooting on the news And I don't know how I am ever supposed to let you out of my sight. I think about those children, how they woke up and had breakfast that morning as they did all the mornings before. Half-eaten Pop-Tarts and eggs in a coat of ketchup. How they insisted on wearing their favorite shirt, even though it was covered in stains. How they tied their shoes and double-knotted them just to be sure. How they smiled when they saw their friends on the bus and told them about the soccer game they'd had that weekend, the goal they scored, how none of them could have ever known what was coming. I fear everything I cannot control, and know that I control nothing. I am standing in a thunderstorm attempting to shield you from every jagged slice of yellow sky. I am trying to inhale all the smoke from this burning world, while asking you to hold your breath. I mean, just such a heartbreaking and beautiful poem. And you say, I fear everything I cannot control and know that I control nothing. And I think for parents, that is such a true statement. Mm. When we have to live as if we do, but in fact, we don't. And it's a a hard reality to to come to to accept, um, to grasp. It's, It's so much of... So much of our children's lives, um, we have no control over, um, and it's not to say that we're we're supposed to have control over them. But these are the, you know, the people who feel most precious to you, the people who, who so often they they carry parts of you, uh, you know, emotionally, biologically, um, it, it it, and to you know, I remember the first day I watched my son walk into kindergarten, yeah. and he has this like oversized backpack, and he's like bopping into kindergarten and you see and you know only a few months ago he was in pre-k 
Uh, and he was the biggest kid, you know, one of the biggest kids in the school. And then he goes to kindergarten and you're like, who are these fifth graders and fourth graders, these giants among, among these little, these little plants of children. Um, and, and it's just so devastating to imagine a moment where a child is dropped off by their parents and their parents go to work or go back home. And I, I think oh, whenever there are these school shootings, I just, I think about that phone call yeah. and, I, and it is something that I can just, it's a level of emotional devastation that is difficult to wrap your head around. And yet is something that happens in our country over and over and over again. And it's such a profound failure of our political system that it continues to. Well, indeed. In fact, as you were writing, I scribbled the words learned helplessness. I mean, Mm. you know, in response, I mean, how many how many school shootings or how many just shootings have there been even since the beginning of the year? And yet, you know, we seem helpless to do anything about it or unwilling to do anything about it. Yeah, no. And I think that that's that's it. And it's a question that so many of us are asking is, is how how can we accept like living in a in a country where this continues to happen and and you know other countries look at us and think it is and just are sort of bamboozled by the lack of political will to to do what is necessary to prevent this from continuing to happen Um, and the distortions of our history the distortion of of our second amendment the sort of uh way that money in our political system controls the the what sort of uh political decisions are made with uh, regard to these these sorts of these sorts of issues. Uh, it reveals a lot about about who we are um, in ways that uh, we should honestly be be very ashamed of. You know, I'm looking at how the word is passed. Your your, your book that won the National Book Critics Circle Award, and I wonder too about just the, when you think about the impact of slavery on families, on parents, but on children. The idea of being wrenched away or having your parents wrenched away from you is a kind of murder. Absolutely. I I think it's, uh, you know, historians would often call it uh, a social death um, when you are stripped away from your family and sent to another plantation. And it's interesting for me as I was writing How the Word Has Passed. I think when I had been taught about the history of violence and slavery, I was taught largely about it through the the idea of the spectacle of physical brutality, the beatings and the whippings and the hangings. And it wasn't until I began writing How the Word Has Passed and when we began to start our own family, uh, which happened around the same time, that I began thinking more about family separation. And I remember this moment where I was standing, and I have a poem about this in the book, but standing in a cabin at the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. Um, And it is one of the original slave cabins that remains on that land from hundreds of years ago. And I, you walk in and you hear the wood moan under your feet and you see the sun sort of sneak in through cracks in the roof. And I close my eyes and imagine what it would be like if one night I put my children to sleep. And then I woke up the next day and my children were gone. And I had no idea where they went. I had no idea who had taken them. I had no idea if I would ever see them again. It's, a, it's an unfathomable sort of horror. And then you have this moment where you realize that, oh, this is the omnipresent threat that hung over millions of enslaved people every single day of their lives, that at any moment you could be taken from your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your, your, your husband, your wife, for no reason at all. And, and it's a, I think that it, putting my body 
in the place where such history took place, what it does is it gives me a different sense of, of proximity to that history. It's a creates a, it creates a different sorts of in, a different sort of intimacy uh, with that history, where it's not a historical abstraction, but but suddenly feels uh, much more real. Why do you think at this time in our history we we are so afraid? <laughs> I think that's the word too. Mm. We're so afraid to acknowledge our past and and the the hurts does is sort of a poor word to describe the you know the hurts and the terror of the past and that we cannot accept that and we cannot talk about it i think you're absolutely right to use the word afraid uh i think i think it's fear um and i thought a lot about this and how the word is passed yeah. I, I one of my chapters i spend uh with members of the sons of confederate veterans um at the at one of the largest confederate slave um confederate cemeteries in the country <clears throat> And I was there for the Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. And I remember having conversations with these Confederate reenactors and trying to understand what is it that allows someone to believe in something uh, in the sort of mythology of the lost cause that, that is so empirically demonstrated to be false. Um, and part of what you learn, you come to understand is that for so many people, history is not about primary source documents and empirical yeah. evidence. Yeah. It's a story that they're told. And it's a story that they tell. It's an heirloom that's passed down across generations, something where loyalty takes precedence over truth. And I think that for so many people, you know, these are stories they're told by their, by their mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers or communities. And so when somebody comes and begins to tell them that that story is not true, it's not only that they have to reassess their understanding of American history, it becomes a sort of existential crisis. It becomes like a fundamental crisis of identity. Like, who am I if these stories I've been told by people I love are not true. And I think even when you are presented with the evidence to sort of further reaffirm and demonstrate what is true and what is not, it can be difficult to, re- to let go of uh, and untether yourself from, from many of the lies that you've been told because they are integral to who you understand yourself to be. You also write about visiting Monticello. You had a, a tour guide, a, a man named David, who, you know, told, told the, what, felt like a, a much truer story of Thomas Jefferson. And you also talked to two white women who were also at Monticello. They were uh, from out of state, so they had traveled to get there. They didn't know it was a plantation, and they didn't know that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. And she talked about David, the tour guide, kind of taking a shining off this mm-hmm. founding father. And on the one hand, I thought, well, like, well, good, they're there, and they're learning some of this history. But then... You know, as a white woman myself, I felt like you didn't know this. You didn't know this about Thomas Jefferson. It's such a sort of a curious ignorance, if I can put it that way. Hmm. I think that... Um, a willful ignorance, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was really revealing to me um, because I think it was a reminder that even, you know, over the past decade, you know, sort of beginning with the Black Lives Matter movement and the way that that has shifted our collective public consciousness around our history, around the ways that racism um, exists in the world, not only as an interpersonal phenomenon, but as a systemic one, as a structural one, as a sociological one. I think that more and more people have begun to be honest um, about this part of history, but it was a reminder having a conversation with those women that even though the conversation has changed in many parts of our society, um, there are still many people who have no conception of the relationship that slavery played in our founding story have no understanding of the relationships that our founders themselves had to slavery, so often as slave owners. Um, 
and and so you know i think thomas jefferson is i wanted to go to monticello because for me monticello is this place that really represents the idea that america is a place that has provided unparalleled unimaginable opportunities for millions of people across generations in ways that their own ancestors could have never imagined and has also done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people who have been intergenerationally subjugated and oppressed and both of those things are the story of America. It's not one over here and one over there. You get to pick this one and not pick that one. It's that they're both deeply entangled in one another. And I think the, the Thomas Jefferson sort of reflects the complexity of that. He's someone who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world and also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He's someone who wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that black people are in, inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. And so I think the, the sort of cognitive dissonance of, yeah. and moral inconsistency of Jefferson reflects in many ways the moral inconsistency of, of the American project. The idea of cognitive dissonance, two ideas that don't really line up neatly, we have to learn mm. to live with that. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's a project that I'm interested in yeah. across my work. And, you know, coming back to above ground, like that simultaneity, that, that complexity, that having to sit with, with the world as being a place full of, of joy and wonder and magic and also being a place filled with devastation, and disappointment and catastrophe. It's, it's all of it, right? There's no sort of, and we, and we carry all of it at the same time. Like we don't, we are not able to sort of neatly demarcate our lives into like today is a sad day or today is a happy day or today is a day where I'm going to feel joy. Today is, it's, it is that you are so often experiencing an amalgam of those emotions all at once. Let me quote something. This is from the epilogue uh, of your book of um, how the word is passed. And you write, my family told me my grandfather's grandfather was born into slavery, comma, and I never knew until I asked. And mm. I circled that because um, some, these are painful questions, I would assume, especially for, for black people in America, these are, you know, a much loaded, a much different kind of loaded question than white people's relationship to slavery. I think that that's absolutely true. And, and part of what you come to realize is that there's a sort of um, intergenerational silence that sometimes exists um, that, that is necessary to be, um, that needs to be excavated. Um, you know, I think about the, when I, in the epilogue, I had conversations with my granddad again born in 1930 Jim Crow Mississippi and my grandmother born in 1939 Jim Crow Florida and asked them questions about their lives and realized that the so many of so much of the trauma that they had experienced were things that they had not talked about for for years or or ever um, and I remember you know the pain on my grandmother's face when she was recounting uh, you know growing up in in North Florida um, and walking down a sort of dusty red, red road, and having white children like go by, uh, go by her, in a car and, and spit at her, mm. um, and call her the N word and and throw food at her, um, and I, I you know there was this there's this beautiful elderly woman who I've known my entire life in front of me, and suddenly I'm seeing her as this eight year old child you know with dust covered ankles being being spit on and being harangued by by these children who had learned hate fr as an heirloom from their parents, mm. an heirloom from their community. 
we're almost out of time, and I actually want to quote from uh, one of your other poems. When people say we have made it through worse before, you write, sometimes the moral arc of the universe does not bend in a direction that comforts us. Sometimes it bends in a way in ways we don't expect, and there are people who fall off in the process. Please, dear reader, do not say I am hopeless. I believe there is a better future to fight for. I simply accept the possibility that I may not live to see it. I've grown weary of telling myself lies that I might one day begin to believe we are not all left standing after the war has ended. Some of us have become ghosts by the time the dust has settled. Does that sort of capture your 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 mood today? Yeah, I'm, I'm always thinking about how <clears throat> my life and my children's lives are only possible because of generations of people who fought for something they knew they might never see, but they fought for it anyway because they knew that someday someone would. And I think about how the dance parties with my kids in the kitchen, making French toast with my kids, going to the park with my kids, those things are only possible because of generations of black people in this country who struggled for freedom uh, when they knew that they might never experience the fruits of their labor themselves. And I think about what, what does that mean for us? Um, what responsibility do we have to those whom we might never meet? Um, and how can we express it's just so much gratitude for this life that has been made possible by these people who never got to experience the manifestation of that work for themselves. And so it both gives me a sense of gratitude and a sense of um, responsibility. Well, Clint Smith, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on The Connection today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure for us as well. And again, Clint Smith's latest collection of poetry is titled Above Ground. And again, a book he wrote a couple of years ago, How the Word is Passed, subtitled A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, was a bestseller when it came out, and it also won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Diana Martinez, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The show is produced by Debbie Builder, the senior producer, and Paige Murray-Bessler is the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoane. Thank you so much for joining us.